You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. 20 years ago, Don and I were pregnant. Yes, I know, it was more her than me. But we were both pregnant, and it was in kind of a tumultuous time. Next month, September 11th, will be the 20-year anniversary. And with one month to go in our pregnancy, we watched the Twin Towers fall. And we, like you, watched the world stop. Planes get grounded. Uh, plans come to screeching halt. Everything just seemed surreal, did it not? Kind of like the world was just bumped a little bit on its axis. And we didn't quite know what to make of it. And there, there are lots of things that go through your mind, right? When you're pregnant and when things like that happen. Like, is this the kind of world we want to bring a child into? And within weeks, and within weeks, uh, the United States entered Afghanistan and began a war that's lasted 20 years, trying to bring stability, trying to bring peace, trying to do what could be done. And I, I know, as like just our prayer request today, the heaviness that's there, I, I know what's on our hearts because we collectively share it. We grieve as we watch what happens at the Kabul airport. We know what it's like for moms and dads and grandparents and parents everywhere to care about the safety of their family and to want things to be calm and peaceful. And it's hard to know what to do with all of these fears. You know, we've had to feel the earthquake in a very small way from Haiti, a country that's had so much instability, so much unrest, so much poverty, unlike any the face of the globe. Such a poor country. And so we feel it, and we pick up our phones, and we read the paper, and these are the things that hit us. And then you get closer to home, and this also made into the prayer request, attacks on, on, on officers and, and seeing people that are just taking as the first step, let me pick up a gun to solve this problem. Right? Even 14-year-olds even on Friday the 13th. Let me go to school. A guy just standing up to a bully, not wanting to fight the bully, and the bully takes the kid's life on the playground. Now, this is unsettling, right? And these are just the things that we can talk about and see on the news. Closer to home are the difficulties with finance or the difficulties with mental health or marriage. And so what are we supposed to do, right? What are we supposed to do with the fears that press in on us? How are we to find some kind of a healing word, some kind of a healing action in times like this? Well, let me tell you, at first, we're a group of people that wrestle with life together. We do. We have made a decision in our lives as a group of people, just like Anthony and Deva announced, that we're going to be those people who follow Jesus. That's it, pure and simple. That's what we're about following Jesus through a difficult and a dark world. And so we invite you, 
If you want to come along and join us in following Jesus, we have found it to be a way to walk through life. As we live in the presence of Jesus, it helps us to know how to put one foot in front of the other. As we attempt to do and copy and duplicate the things that Jesus did, it helps us to know what to do. When our words, when our voices are the overflow of our hearts, saying the things that Jesus himself said, we know what to do. And whenever we're in line behind Jesus, following Jesus, it helps us know where to go. And sometimes it takes us into places that are new and, and uncomfortable, but there's a confidence and there's an assurance that's there. We are the people who follow Jesus. And that helps us. In fact, I'll tell you a little secret. If, if you're new to FIRST, yesterday we concluded five weeks of praying for our neighbors. In fact, if, if you're listening to my voice and you've not set foot on our campus before, I want you to know that the group leaders of this church, the members of this church, have been praying for their neighbors. Blessings upon their neighbors. How's that for a way to approach life? To care so deeply about this world that we don't fret in fear, but we actually pray for those who are around us, those that we live with. That's the kind of people that you find here at First Christian. And we began to, together a fairly appropriate teaching, I think, of trust being greater than or equal to all of our fears. And we've been looking at a story that, that ties us into not fears, but trust. Trust in God. Probably a better way to translate that word, the fear of God, is trust or confidence or respect in God. And our story is one of turmoil. And I want to read to you just a section of that story. If you'd like, I would welcome you to join me in standing. I'm going to read not all of chapter 2, but I'm going to read starting in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded the people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and she bore a son. When she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, plastered it with bitumen and pitch, and put the child in it, and among the reeds and on the bank of the river. The sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while the attendants walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then his sister stepped forward, and she said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a handmade nurse from among the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you wages. 
So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. She took him as her son, and she named him Moses. Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsfolk. And he looked this way, and he looked that way. And seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting, and he said to the one who was in the wrong, Why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? And he answered, Who made you a ruler over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. And he thought, Surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he settled in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow. This story is one of turmoil. And you may not remember kind of the setting of what's going on, but this group of Hebrew people, they've always been an outsider. They've always been kicked to the side. They didn't have a home. They had lots of promises from God. And they got in pretty good with the world power. They got a place that they could reside, a land, and they had this status as workers in Egypt until Pharaoh decided to change their status from worker to slave. Have you had this happen before? Maybe you're like some of us who've immigrated to this country and know what it's like to try to find work and make work in the world. Try to make a living when it's not your country. Well, they had done that and got good status, and then it's taken away. Their burdens are increased. Their labor is increased. And, well, you probably had that happen too. Maybe a boss that changed your job description as soon as you got in the door. Altered things, almost like they want to push you out the door. And here, in this story, that's what's happened to them. And you talk about a fearful, difficult time. This leader had tried very secretly to begin to control the Hebrew problem. The, the slave immigrant problem. Let's try to kill them where it looks like an accident. Tried to get the women to take the lives of these babies, and it didn't work. So forget the secret, forget the accident, let's go public, let's make a decree, let's throw all the babies in the water. That's what we're going to do. We're going to kill them all. Now I know we kind of get frustrated about a mask mandate or request to get a vaccination, but folks, there's no comparison. There's just not a comparison to killing all of our children. And that's what this ruler does. And we have women. The story jumps very personal at this point. We get two from the tribe that's the priestly tribe who conceive and give birth to a baby. Uh, not, not, not a good time to have a baby. 
an edict like this? Not a good, they already had two. They already had Aaron and Miriam, older children of Moses, but they have another child. And they didn't nurture fear, but heard what was going on and hid the pregnancy. Now, I don't know how you do this, but hid the pregnancy. Maybe those robes allow it to be possible. But eventually that baby comes out and she still nurtured life. She nurtured hope. She'd watched her diet. She'd cared for her own body. And now she protects this child as long as she can. I don't know what you say. You know, well, the baby died. They already came by my house. Eventually it gets to the point where she can't hide the child any longer. And you know the story. She follows the decree of Pharaoh. kind of, putting it in a basket, floating it down the river. Not exactly the safest thing, but what do you do in desperate times? When you are desperate, you're going to lift your baby over the wall, right? You're going to do what it takes. And that's what she does. The baby floats and comes to Pharaoh's daughter. Are you kidding me? Could the story get worse? And Pharaoh's daughter is also a woman, and she, she harbors, harbors hope in her, height, in her heart. She has pity on this child. But that's it. That's all she says. And here comes bold Miriam through the reeds. I don't know how old she is. Not very old. Six, twelve. Pharaoh's daughter hasn't indicated other, anything other than pity, and the suggestion given by Miriam is, would you like a handmaid to nurse this child? How about that for boldness, for action? And she says yes, and that's what happens. Pharaoh's daughter ends up being almost this image of God, one that goes down to the river, one that draws out a baby and who gives it the name drawn out because I drew that one out. And then there's Moses, who gets his mother, who's paid to be his mother, nurses him for his entire growing up formative years. And you know the mom talk. You're going to be the one. You're going to help us get out of here. You could do this. You're on the inside. You're an inside man. I don't know what it was like for Moses to wrestle with that task of being a deliverer, of being one who could see the pain, the plight of his people, and the privilege that he has inside of the palace of learning the languages, of eating the good foods, of never having to fear for his life. But he finally, finally chooses his act of defiance because he sees an Egyptian killing one of his own, and in his act of defiance, he kills the Egyptian. And that act of defiance, he learns something about leading people. (laughs) Something really important. The people don't want to follow you. They don't care. And so when he tries to break up two fighting Hebrews, they say, well, what are you going to do? Kill us just like you killed the Egyptian? And this terrifies Moses. And he takes off and he leaves. And he sits down by a well. You know, the fears don't get wiped away, do they? This man who sits down by another body of water, his fears don't go away. 
But he feels like the time of delivering is now history. He's now seen and known as an Egyptian. That's how they view him. Even these daughters that come to, we didn't read this part, but draw water for their sheep. They think he's an Egyptian. He feels like as a Hebrew in his heart, he's got no homeland. He's in yet another foreign country. And so he helps out those women, drives away the shepherds that are keeping the women from feeding their sheep. And he ends up marrying a Midianite woman, oddly enough, from a priestly tribe of Midian, and begins a life where his firstborn child is named Sojourner, Stranger, Traveler, Wanderer. The stranger, who has no home, finds a strange family that becomes his home. Okay, well, what does a story like this do for us? I mean, we, we look at this, and we're still sorting through our own fears. I mean, what do we do when our fears press in upon us? We have our own running fears, those things that are constantly there, our concern for the people that we love the circumstances that we face, the job, the lack of a job, the housing situation, the housing situation that isn't. We have those circumstances that create fear for us. When I look at this story, I I hear two things, two very important things that will not be new to you. To seek the God who is in control and to make the next right step. Those two things. It's not new. But seeking the God who is in control, even when circumstances don't show it, and taking the next right step for you in your position where you are at, that's what we're supposed to do. All of these fears that we have, all of the anxiety of things, some that we can control, some that we can't, We are to take all of these, collect them up, and surrender them to the God who is in control. A God who, by the way, and unfortunately, is not overly verbal. But we bring our fears to this non-verbal God, this God who is more invisible at times than visible, and we surrender them to Him. In this series of trust that is greater than or equal to fear, that is what is it about. Turning our fear into trust. It's pretty easy for leaders, for people of all kinds, to begin to feel like we're the only ones. Are you there? I'm the only one that thinks this way. I'm the only one that's willing to put in the hours. I'm the only one that's willing to do the dirty work. Who else around cares about what I'm doing? You feel alone as being the only one that's doing the right. No, I'm not going to watch that movie. No, I'm not going to spend my money that way. And we get made fun of, and we get ridiculed, and we feel alone and like we're the only one. Folks, you're not. You're not the only one, and you're not alone. God is with you. The thing that strikes me about this story are the many ironies that keep piling up. And I want to share with you a few of these ironies in the hopes that maybe we'll see that we're not alone. That the fear we feel 
is maybe displaced, not in the right location. When we look at these things that, that capture us as ironies, I mean, you, you know what irony is, right? Where something, as it seems, is not really what it is, it's actually the opposite, it's contradictory. So if you're watching a movie and a character says something or does something, and they're not fully aware that what they're saying is actually the opposite, we can kind of chuckle and laugh because we see that irony. Well, one of the big ironies is just the journey that the Israelites have been on, to be resident foreign workers. Workers that get transformed over into slaves. People that feel forgotten by God, burdened, increased with their workloads, oppressed. A group of people that, even through a secret execution, cannot be wiped out. Even through a public, systematic execution, a massacre of children, cannot be wiped out. A group of people that's oppressed, yet they have this leader who's on the inside a murderer who flees. Their situation, as bad as it seems, is not the full picture. Another big irony is the women. <laughs> over and over again in Exodus, it's the women that show us the strength of God. It's through these women that the power of God is coming to be. In fact, the groundwork is laid by these women for God to provide this rescue. Their faithfulness allows that to happen. It's particularly the Hebrew women, but it's not only the Hebrew woman. Did you notice that? You've got the strength of Moses' mom and the strength of Moses' sister, but what about Pharaoh's daughter? She knows what the edict is to pull this child out of the water in contrast to the edict. That is something else. It's more than pity. It's action. You see, these fearful people are not giving way to their fears, these women are showing us how you act in strength. Not flashiness, not an anger, not even where you can even tell that anything is going on, but quietly and systematically doing what's good. Now a third one, the men, if you look at how the men act, and again, this is not specific to gender roles, but it's the way, the way it plays out in this text. The men try to do everything by control, by fear and violence, right? Pharaoh's giving edicts. Pharaoh is pushing violence to control things, to make things the way they should be. Even Moses, right? In his first false start as being a deliverer, is like, okay, well, I guess this, this is my chance. I'm going to kill this Egyptian. And God has to pull Moses out from the inside to even further on the outside to let Moses know that all those sweet things that his mother said were right, but that God is the deliverer. God is the one that's going to do this, and we're going to do this through acts of faithfulness in his strength. Unlearning that power. Well, when I look at that, when I look at the way the men have acted towards death, you have to chuckle at the irony that they cannot stop the life of God from coming. Not the life of Moses, not the life of these babies, not the life of this group of people that would bless the world. It continues to move forward. 
And the biggest irony of all that maybe summarizes these others is how God works through weakness to bring about strength, to bring about what should happen. The irony of a priestly family giving birth to this baby at a terrible time, a baby that grows up to marry another PK, a priest in, the, in, the, in Midian, another nomadic group of people. These underprivileged, these insignificant, these overlooked people are the ones that God uses to bring His salvation. Now how about that for a twist on the story? That as much as power and strength and violence and guns tends to be the thing that causes fear, God's able to work through calmness and strength and weakness and what seems like softness to change things. That's the way Jesus was. One who worked justice for the oppressed. One who defeated power by seemingly being undone and killed by that power. How's that for a transition story? Jesus who shows us what that looks like. And today, I, I see a lot of people driven by fear. I see a lot of Christians and churches where fear is the only tool in their basket. That's it. Let's generate fear. Let's create fear. Let's be afraid. Let's cower. And I, I've seen it my entire life of Christians gathering together, being afraid of sometimes even other Christians or other leaders who operate terrified and afraid of Satan. Have you noticed this? Be afraid. Cower. Hide. Because this doctrine might come or this group of leaders might come, or culture might overtake you. Lots and lots of fear everywhere being used to make us more and more and more afraid. Brothers and sisters, nowhere are we told to be afraid of Satan. Nowhere are we told to be afraid of the devil or of evil. Have we forgotten to be Turning from evil? Yes. To not pursue evil? Yes. Right? To flee from evil? Yes. But to be afraid of it? No. No. Unequivocally, no. Have we forgotten the psalm? The 23rd psalm that we pray at funerals. What does it say in there? You know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I will fear. Yes. So why is it that we're harangued and bent and driven by fear. Stop it! This is not God's way. God doesn't care what the circumstances are. God needs faithful people who will be calm and who will trust that His way is the best way and to take the next right step. Not, not worry about somebody else's decision somewhere else, but you Take the next right step for you so that you can say with confidence, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't want. I don't fear. I will fear no evil because you're with me, God. And I'm with you. I'm not with my opinions. I'm not with the things that I think need to happen. I am with God. If you want to talk about what terrorism is, Terrorism is the use of fear and intimidation to get what you want. Does that sound like God? 
Does that sound like sometimes what we hear from our own? To be afraid and be terrified? Yeah, it does sometimes. Is that of God? It is not of God. We lay down this fear. Even in our lives when sometimes God seems sidelined, where God might seem sleeping or slumbering, or like He doesn't care, we follow a group of women Moses' mother, his sister, yeah, even, even Pharaoh's daughter. And we go in confidence, assurance that we don't have to be the ones to right every wrong. We don't have to be the ones to correct every error, but we do have to be the ones to take that next step of faithfulness to God. A God that doesn't act in fear. A God that calls us to come in trust. The only one that we're to fear is God. You can find that in Scripture. But it's not the terrified, cowering kind of fear. It's respect. It's confidence. It's hope in what God is doing. That our situation, even if it killed us, it's going to be okay. Because we follow a Lord who went to the cross. That was His ultimate message. Not for a battle, but for a death. And so our death doesn't much matter. Our lives are lived trusting in God and making that next right step. You know, if you're looking for a group of people to follow Jesus with, I cannot think of a better group than this. Seriously. This group has been doing it for decades, for a century. They know what it is to follow Jesus, to go in confidence. So if, if you need that, talk to me afterwards. If you want to know what it is to put Christ on in baptism, to live no longer surrendered to, to sin or whims or desired, but surrendered to a God that cares deeply for you, wow, that's a life that anyone in this room could tell you about. That's who we are. Let's give our thanks to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are like the parent that we just never could have imagined who comes to us and asks, asks us to trust you. Father, help us to act not in anger or terror or fear, but to act in respect of you. I thank you so much for this group of people. They are a lifeline for me. People that are focused on following you who have, have it in their blood, who've been doing it for a long time, who's in some cases their, their families have been doing it. In other cases, they've shown strength by stepping away from their family and being the first. God, we just thank you to be a part of this group of people. And we pray that you'll continue to receive our worship as we gather around the table, as we draw strength from the body and blood of Jesus, that we will live as people unafraid. Through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and evermore. Amen.